and what advice you'd give to those out there that are thinking about a military transition or might be currently in that season of life. Yeah, no, I uh, appreciate the chance to talk on this. So, you know, when we talked earlier, I didn't know how to process my own transition, right? I'll, I'll be honest, it was too painful and I was too ignorant and I didn't set myself up for success, right? So um, there's a, a tool, two-part model I call hunting versus fishing. And in my transition, I was a fisherman, right? Throw your resume in the water, hope to catch a fish. Uh, you want a bigger fish, you put shiny shit on your resume, like certifications, and you want a guaranteed fish, you use a headhunter, right? Um, they throw your resume in front of starting fish and they want your big. Right. So great. That's what I did. It was the easiest way to get guaranteed fish. Now, thankfully, the, the company that I used did expose us to certain types of industries. But, you know, even in that process, I didn't really know how to assess who I was or what I really wanted. Right. And in that process, I only learned how to get fish. I didn't know how or learn how to fish. Right. To kind of use the give a man a fish, teach a man a fish model. I was never taught how to fish or how to hunt. Right. And, you know, thankfully, through entrepreneurship, through my work in government acquisitions and human intelligence with SOCOM, I was able to kind of merge this this new process together that I call hunting. Right. And just like the military, right, know your enemy, know yourself. Right. The first step in transition or hunting is who am I? What do I need? And why am I hunting in the first place? Welcome to the Leading with Vulnerability podcast. I'm your host, Yuma Barnett, and today my guest is Josh Atkinson. Uh, Josh is a graduate of the United States Naval Academy and a former Marine. Uh, we're not going to hold that against him. If Josh was here in person, we'd definitely have some crayons to eat instead of donuts so he could kick off the morning. Uh, but uh, seriously, thanks for your service. If I hadn't joined the Army in the 75th Ranger Regiment, the Marines probably where I would have ended up because I like the culture there. It's very, uh, we always call the 75th kind of the Marine Corps of the Army. So thanks for your service. I know you, we're going to get into your service and kind of your separation some, from service. And it was kind of unique and a surprise to you when it happened, but I'm not going to take your story. I'm going to pass it off to you and let you introduce yourself and we'll get on with the uh, conversation. Awesome. Hey, Yuma, thanks for allowing me to join. And, uh, you know, thanks for the offer of the crayons. I've already eaten all the orange ones out of the box this morning. This one's the, the best flavor of the day. Um, but yeah, so, uh, you know, Marine Corps veteran, you know, I'm a Naval Academy grad. Um, I kind of take it a badge of honor when people don't realize that until I have to tell them, you know, it means I'm doing something right and uh, not wearing the ring around and pissing people off. But, um, but yeah, you know, my, my story, I think, is is not unique, but it is maybe different in some ways, you know, and I found that trying to be vulnerable and try to share some of those failures um, on my end, some of the things that I've learned is, is a way to hopefully help others who may have been through a similar story, who don't know how to process it and don't know how to relate to other people and don't know how to be vulnerable, you know, maybe speak up, right? Maybe, maybe reach out and yeah. connect with someone and say, look, I'm not really what I thought I was. I'm not feeling or what I'm feeling is okay. And I'm maybe not doing about this the right direction. And, and I'm actually able to do more than I thought I could. Yeah, absolutely. That's perfect. You segue right into it. And the, and the first question we'll just lead it off is what's uh, what's Josh's definition of, of vulnerability? Uh, vulnerability. I think um, maybe it's closely tied, I think, to, to humility, right? And uh, you know, I even use this definition in networking, but being willing to reach out to people to get help to solve something that you have going on, right? And I think the truth behind that is to be vulnerable, to ask for help means I have to be willing to admit that something is, is off, yeah. that I can't do it by myself anymore, that I can't be a lone ranger, that I can't 
um, handle what's going on around me, right? And I think people see that as a weakness. You know, culturally in the military, we're this type A alpha male. And the more senior you get in leadership, as I know you can probably attest to, the peer group you have around you gets smaller. And therefore, there are less people you are able to be vulnerable with because positionally we're told not to, right? And I think that makes it even harder, you know, to then go onto LinkedIn, I say, treat it like a bar and reach out to someone and say, hey, I see you're just like me. You know, I'm really struggling with this thing. Can you help or do you know somebody else that can help, right? And, you know, again, I think there's so many other factors that have gone into why vulnerability is harder. But, you know, the culture on active duty, the zero defect, like show no, show no flaw, right? Everything's always good. You know, the beatings will continue until morale improves, right? So we just kind of keep it all inside. And to not keep it inside, I think, is to to lose control. So we maintain control by hiding or pretending. And at the other point, right, we can't change it anyway. So why bother, right? Why why be vulnerable when I can't change the system? And that just leads to having to deal with more pain, yeah. right? Or more frustration. And I think as you start getting into transition, it's critical to learn how to be vulnerable. It's critical to know how to ask for help because once you leave the family of the military, you are isolated, right? You have to build that tribe around you. You have to find people that can provide the help because the family system doesn't inherently watch over you, right? You don't have brothers and sisters that are sleeping in the room next to you all the time that you're going to see every day that can identify possibly when something looks off or you're behaving odd because now you are isolated. Now you can lie better, right? Yeah. To call it what it is. I can hide better. I can lie better. I can pretend better. And in order to protect ourselves, we have to learn how to reach out and say, I'm, I'm not okay today. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think yeah. one of the things, you know, when I think about my transition from the military or other people's and reaching out to people, it's uh, when you're in the military, you send an email and you get a reply within like 10 minutes, a lot of the time, right. It's, it's just in our, you either reply or you're getting the reply quickly. I have to tell people it's a, if you, you might reach out to 10 people and you might only get two replies because people are busy. People have other things going on. They might not prioritize like you do. It might be two weeks for you hear from, hear from somebody that you're reaching out to on the other side. Um, and that people, I would see them just get discouraged. You know, they would be vulnerable and open up and they think people didn't care, but that wasn't it. It's just the environment has changed so much from the military side to the other side. Did you kind of, did you experience any of that in your transition when you're reaching out? Yeah, I think it depends, I guess, on expectation and persistent, right? I think one thing I've learned is that in the military, you have very defined communication channels, right? And in the civilian world, you have a myriad of communication channels. And as we were always taught in the military, email sent is not email received, right? So sometimes you just have to be more persistent or find multiple modes of contact until you can connect with somebody because... You know, just because you have a LinkedIn profile doesn't mean you're active on LinkedIn. Just because you have a Facebook profile doesn't mean you're active on Facebook. Correct. Just because you contact the email on your social media account doesn't mean you actually give a shit about that email account because you put it on there for all the spammers out there to say the shit to an email that's not going to cause any problems. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, I think we're used to having that direct access and to get a reply. But I think the converse to that is that people don't want to reach out anyway because they feel like there's a barrier. They feel like it's not polite. They feel like it's not okay to contact a stranger or somebody that I don't directly know 
and ask for help because now I'm rude, now I'm wrong, now I'm something, right? Yeah. Whatever that is, you know, I've heard like, you know, how do I network? How do I reach out to people? And it's hard, right? I think and my counter to that is how many people did you call when your commander said, go find me a, a spare part that we don't have? And you go call somebody at another unit because you looked up the supply department in the global and called them. Like, did you know who was going to answer the phone? No. no. Did you have any problem calling that number? Like, well, no, it was a fellow Joe on the other end. I'm like, okay. So I can use LinkedIn to find a fellow army vet, fellow Marine, fellow Navy vet, fellow veteran period, knowing they're a vet and contact them and say, Hey, you're somewhere where I think you may have information that can help me. Can I please talk to you? Yep. Right. Absolutely. Not I'm a beggar and I want a handout. Not I'm desperate. Right. It's like a, you know, going on a dating app and saying, I'll just sleep with anybody. I mean, like, like that's <laughs> not the point, right? The point is like, Hey, I think there's something I can learn from you. Can I talk to you? Right. I think you have access to material, to information, to resources that are valuable to me. Can I talk to you about that? Can I get help from you? And the one thing the veteran community does really, really well is we protect each other, right? And vets want to, not always, right? But 99 point something percent of the time, vets want to help vets. And if I have a resource that could have helped you, I would feel hurt that you didn't ask me to help you because I want to make sure that you're okay. Yeah, great stuff. I agree with everything you're saying there, Josh. And we'll go back to your service a little bit and your time at the Naval Academy. And if you could just share a little bit about your experience at the Naval Academy, why you chose chose them uh, chose the Marine Corps, and just some of your you know some of your lessons learned and pros and cons of uh, of the Marine Corps, if you can remember back that far. Yeah, I remember. Um, so why Naval Academy? It's kind of a, a humor story, I guess. Um, growing up, I had no idea what the service academies were. Right. I'm not one of those legacy kids who had their life groomed to become competitive like many do. And I heard about West Point um, in my history class in high school. And then the principal's son from the school was going to West Point. So he flew back and did his like walk around the high school recruiting tour. I was like, all right, cool. You know, I was looking at military. You know, I couldn't pay for college. So how do I get college paid for? I can go in the reserves. I can go active duty. Like trying to find options for school. And I learned about West Point. Well, that sounds interesting. So I started considering it. and. Uh, at the time, one of my mentors uh, for church was a Marine vet, and he told me I wasn't allowed to go to West Point, right? Like, you can't go there, right? You got to go to the Marine Corps Academy. <laughs> what the hell is that? <laughs> like, he's like, it's called Annapolis. I looked up Annapolis, and it was a city. Like, no, you got it's like Naval Academy. So he told me about it. You know, I was going into my senior year. I was like, okay, I don't really know what I want to do afterwards, but if I go Navy, then I've got the boat life, you know, the flying life in the Navy. I've got the Marine Corps, which is the ground side and logistics. And it seemed like there were more options going to the Naval Academy than going into the Army. So I applied, right? I mean, it's kind of a long shot. Went through the process, you know, by God's grace, I got accepted, um, which to me wasn't a validation that I'm better than anybody else. It was more of a validation that I could be who I was and be okay there, right? Which maybe it's a different way of looking at it, but it's like, I didn't have to pretend to be somebody I wasn't. This seemed like kind of how I was wired. And I've told many people that if I went to a normal college, I probably would have failed out because I do better when there's a discipline structure around me because I get scatterbrained once in a while. And having something hold me accountable is a good thing. Um, so when I was there, I don't know, I was dead set on going Marine, but uh, all the senior leaders that I had, every company, every student is 
nested inside of a company at the academy. And every company has an active duty 03 or 04 and an E7 or E8, right? That's a senior listed. All of my senior list leaders were Marines by chance, right? So again, I was able to build that connection with enlisted mentorship. Um, just found that I liked a lot of the Marine Corps culture better. I liked the pride. I liked the uh, work ethic. I liked the culture. So, you know, when it came down to a choice, my first choice was Marine Corps Air, right? Marine Corps Aviation. And that's where I started. Um, I learned later I probably should have gone Marine Corps ground or other things, but, um, you know, it was just kind of a good fit, I think, for personality, for culture, and what I wanted to do. That small brotherhood, you know, the pride, the aggression. Uh, the willingness to, you know, do harder things, right? To challenge ourselves is what attracted me to it. Probably like what attracted you to Rangers, mm -hmm. right? Not because you want to be better than everyone, but you want a chance to do something different and something more uh, that was unique, right? So, I mean, I love the core. Um, warts and all, I, I still love the core. <laughs> oh, that, that, I mean, I've, I've had some great experiences with Marines. And, you know, that's right. When I joined the, the Ranger Regiment, I wasn't joining, like you said, to be better than everybody else. I was joining for myself. I was doing that to be be the best version of myself. I wasn't thinking it, I wasn't thinking at all about being better than everybody else. It was just a personal challenge that I wanted to take on to try to be with the best uh, to see if I could do it, to see if I could uh, see, if yeah. I, see if I could make it. Because there were definitely people, you know, back home that kind of doubted when I told them that this is what I'm going to do. And I wanted to prove them, you know wrong and then i want to prove other people right you know previous mentors and stuff so um what what impact as a leader and a person did the marine corps have on you what do you still take with you today i'm sure there's a lot of it but uh what are some of the things that stand out um i think for goods and bads both right um just the willingness to to, to try the willingness to just solve it right i think the marine corps is a smaller force much like you know rangers and, and soft are and I'm not trying to compare that Marines are special forces, right? We used to always say that, that Marine Corps is a special force. That's why we don't have special forces. And then, of course, they got MARSOC. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that be creative, right? There's there's not enough of you. There's not a plethora of resource. And you don't have the budget to just buy something else. So go figure it out, right? You know, commander's intent, find a solve, you know, find a problem, go figure it out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've learned later on that I think that's, much more of just my inherent personality and it fit well then in that culture was kind of reinforced by the marine corps that says here's your task right don't ask me for help don't go back to your boss and say can i do it right kind of the message to garcia world of i've given you a task go right like just let me know when it's done and let me know what you need to get it done and i like that world, right i like that leadership culture um, the officer eat last culture, right? The servant leadership model, yeah. I think, is still always kind of there. That's like, look, it's all about your team. It's all about your troops. Um, and trying to then figure out, you know, one officer that eat last, but they still have to eat, right? So <laughs> how do you balance still caring for yourself to allow you to be in the role of leadership to make those right decisions, but still make sure your team is, is at the forefront of that, right? That your, your Marines, your troops are still the priority. Um, so that's kind of always stuck with me, right? Like officers eat last and even the Naval Academy that's are we eating Marine Corps style or Navy style, right? And in Navy style, the officers eat first, right? Because on the ship, right, the, the CO is like God on a ship and he controls all things and you're there to kind of serve the king. And in the Marine Corps, it was in the junior enlisted, right? The, the junior midshipmen ate first and the senior midshipmen ate last. And it was always kind of asked, hey, are we eating Marine Corps style or Navy style? Because I told you who got served first of the day, right? And you know, I think that 
that work ethic, that culture, the service mindset has always stuck with me. Um, you know, and then some good things, my, my kids hate it, but it's like the intolerance of, of snowflake isms, right? <laughs> like just suck it up. Right. I mean, there is no real whining. There's no, like some of the stuff, there's a low tolerance for bullshit. Right. Um, at the same time though, like as a dad that doesn't go so well when your kids sometimes need someone to be there to listen and help them learn to grow through that stuff. Right. I mean, you know, going through and being a trainer, you know, in the, in the Marine Corps at the Naval Academy, everyone there is already an adult. Everyone there has already established that ability to go through life. So now I'm just trying to harden you in many things. Um, as a dad, though, I've had to learn that my kids don't know how to yet do that. My wife's great at trying to tell me, like, hey, have you taught them how to process that emotion? Have you taught them how to assess discomfort and be okay with it? rather than just saying, why aren't you already good enough yet, right? Like, why don't you just suck it up? And you have to kind of teach kids how to learn to suck it up because it's uncomfortable. And, you know, those are some of the negatives that I've taken, right? It's great in work life. You know, I work with all veterans, you know, PM Perlin now. And I like working around veterans because we kind of all have that culture and that understanding of intent and drive and passion. But as a dad, I think some of the things the military taught me has made me much less effective, right, as a parent, because yeah. I have a low tolerance for the sniveling and complaining. And, you know, but it's like, again, I can't expect someone who's never been through this to understand it, right? Like, you have to teach kids how to make wise decisions, and you can't just expect it, right. like you do in the military, right? And private still are like kids in many ways in the military mindset, but, um, there's a lot more foundation to work from than. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how many times over my 20 years after I had kids, which I guess would have been about 14 years that I had kids is that my wife would have to tell me these kids aren't your privates. You you can't talk to them like you talk to your <laughs> private. So you got to leave that stuff at work and, and, and come home and, and be a little softer around the edges with them. So uh, I definitely know what you're, what you're talking about there, but your Marine, Sur Marine Corps service didn't really end like you probably envisioned it ending, right? You weren't selected for promotion no. um, and, and you, your life and career probably, you know, kind of had to take a, a change that you maybe weren't expecting. Can you, can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah. My career in uniform took kind of two radical changes. Um, one started in aviation and again, due to my own pride, I think, but the own culture, you know, I thought I was doing right as a class lead to stand up for my class when I was in training, you know, in flight school and they felt unsafe at some point. And I said, you know, it's my job as leaders to protect them. I went and talked to safety about policies that were being acted upon that were in violation of training policy that made us feel unsafe. And I might as well just ended my aviation career at that point. Um, you know, because going against status quo sometimes has radical consequences, which ironically enough now as a businessman, I'm trying to change status quo. Um, but, you know, so early in my aviation career, I was uh, forcibly removed from aviation, even though other factors said I should still be there, but culturally it was like, you know what, you're just not a good fit, go find another job. Um, and then I went to the infantry side of the house, right, as an S4. Uh, those that want to study Hawthorne, Nevada, 2013, right, go look it up. There's a double-fed mortar mishap that killed eight. And I was the guy in the CO staff telling him that he was wrong before it happened. So that quickly saw my removal and scapegoating as a result of that incident. Because again, I was trying to defend the Marines and do the right thing. And both of those kind of led to non-selection to major at the end of my career. And I'd never, ever, you know, due to the pride of being a Marine considered, you know, I probably need to transfer army. 
I probably need to do an inner service transfer to another branch of service just to give myself a fresh start, right? Just to give myself a chance to, to do something better and understand how the career progress worked. But 11 and a half years in, you know, I'm no longer active duty anymore, you know, and I didn't know how to process that. I didn't know, you know, back to the vulnerability concept. I didn't really know how to deal with the hurt that I felt. I didn't know how to deal with um, finding better options and choices because I didn't want to be anything but a Marine, right? I deployed joint twice, once with NATO and once with SOCOM. Had a great joint service time, you know, loved the other branches, but it never even entered my mind that I could have left the Marine Corps. And at the end, it felt like someone, you know, kicking you out of a family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So did not end like I wanted um, at all. Yeah. So, yeah, when we spoke on the phone before this, you, you used the words hurt and, and confused kind of about your separation. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just how did, how did you deal with that? What did you turn to? Did you turn to faith? Did you turn to family? Uh, did you go into career mindset? Like what, what, how did you handle it? I mean, faith definitely is a big part. And even when I got removed from flight status, you know, I remember going to my car and crying, right? I'll be honest. Um, Cause that was not expected at all. And it really hurt. Um, cause my identity was tied a lot into being a pilot as well as a Marine. And there's a, a Bible story, you know, where Christ is in front of Pontius Pilate, you know, before he's, you know, killed and the King, you know, at the time, you know, says, don't you realize I have the power to set you free? And Christ's response is you only have the power my dad gave you. And, you know, I think that has helped me a lot of times in my career to realize that, you know, in my faith that God's the one in control. And although it hurts and it's confusing and it's frustrating, there's a reason that it's there. And ultimately, it's not my decision. It's his decision. And he's going to put things into my life that whether I like them or not, or they're comfortable or not, are ultimately for a greater purpose. Right. And I've been able to see that purpose now, you know, six years later, as I'm able to connect with veterans, to connect with service members, to connect with people, to design a company where I can now relate in different ways that I otherwise never would have been able to relate to, right? I wouldn't have the same story to tell to help other people because I hadn't been there, right? So faith to me was a huge part of it. Um, Trying to reach out to people. And that's where I learned about vulnerability, being willing to go into LinkedIn and say, I need help. Um, Who's ever done a Marine to Army transfer, right? Can somebody please help me? Um, I need help on this thing I'm doing. I used a headhunter to get a job because I thought that was the highest likelihood of success um, because I didn't know how to process the pain of transition. I didn't know how to network. I didn't know what I was worth. So I just figured I'd dump all my eggs into one basket and let somebody else do it for me. I learned later that that's not really the best way, yeah. but it was kind of a mix of both. Like, I mean, my, my wife was there, you know, faith was there. I had people I could talk to, but I think I just kind of bottled a lot of it up. Honestly, like I just internalized it and sucked it up like we're taught to do, as I mentioned earlier. And eventually I was able to get connected with some mentors. I was able to get connected with people that could help me process some of that. My wife has tried to help process some of it, but there's still a lot of emotion there that just goes like, I feel like someone, you know, I I do a, a series now or a class called the Empowered Transition. I say, I'm just a failed major, right? Like just that feeling of being, being a failure it's something it's hard to shape, right? And then that imposter syndrome that comes from it, where it's like, you know, when's someone going to find out that I'm really not qualified to be here, right? right? When's someone going to realize that I'm just a, a liar, you know? And I know it's not true, but that feeling is hard to shape, right? That, you know, and, and in the military, at least you can show up with your rank, you have the credibility, but when I walk into an interview, 
like, hey, why are you why are you applying for this job? And it's like, well, because my last boss just kicked me out. Right. I can't say that answer. I can't be honest. Not really. So I got to find some plausible story to tell on why I'm here, knowing that it's not the ground truth. And that ate at me, too. Right. That I know I'm not really being honest with the people trying to hire me. Like, why are you here? Because I'm, I got fired last time. It was downsized and the core was getting smaller at odd career paths. I didn't find any normal story, but the feeling inside was because I wasn't worth it. And it took me time. It still takes time. That's why I say transition is a journey. It is not an event. And I'm still transitioning emotionally in many cases. And I'm a huge advocate of reserves, right? Because at least the reserves let me go back and talk to people. And my reserve leadership, when I'm back in the reserves, I found some really good um, senior leaders and officers there to talk to who were civilians and had their own issues and things that they had gone through and why they were reserved. There's finding people that had been through circumstances like mine that had been through frustrations like mine or people that could at least empathize with you allowed me to at least start to break down some of those walls. Um, but there's still walls. There's still a lot of stuff out that, that hurts, right? I was confused. Like I devoted my entire life. I've got rockstar fit reps. I have bosses saying you're the best Marine I've ever worked with. And I see window licking mouth breathers, you know, getting promoted because they were too afraid to have, you know, the testicular fortitude in the backbone to do anything that challenged anyone. And I thought that was, you know, I joined the Marines. That was the culture that they said they wanted, right? I want that message to Garcia, figure it out, kick down walls, you know, type person. And then you go do that. And it's like, oh, you upset the apple cart, right? You didn't do it the way it was supposed to be done. And I was like, that's not intent, right? That's not empowerment. Yeah. That's just being a robot and I'm not a robot. So again, it was confusing. It was like, what the hell happened, right? Like I played the game I thought was supposed to be played, not realizing there was a whole nother game being played. I didn't even know about. And I sucked at that one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's just, it's a, uh, it's humbling. I, I assume and it's hard to hard to swallow that pill. Was, if you look back on your service and you and you and I think about today's service, so the army's having you know there's recruiting problems within the military. Our military's gone through a massive change. You know, 20 years of straight conflict since since 9/11. Both are you know all services, all branches, uh, and some some kids and you know people are, are turning away from service now because they they don't want to go into the training the training life right. Um, but I still think I personally, I came in pre 9-11. I think there's a lot of value still in military service as a way to go and test your metal and grow and mature and, and do things. There's a lot of benefit to military service. I can speak on the mil on the Army side of what you can do. But what would you tell somebody out there that's listening that's thinking about joining the Marine Corps but has some hesitations with all the change that's going on in our, in our military right now? That's a great question. And I'm, I just recorded a session to go live with the Air Force here, I think next month for the Logistics Officers Association. And I call it leading in a constrained environment, you know, why we need to learn to say no, essentially. And I think, you know, to the Marines, the character, anyone's service, I think the validation of your own worth, I think, comes from trial, right? And you know, I say character is forged, not given. And a lot of the skills in life, you only learn by getting kicked in the face and picking yourself back up again, right? And and the things that you need to go through, the, the struggles that have to be there, you know, the, the military helps create and bring something out of you that you otherwise will never see, right? You will never be challenged like you will going through boot camp. You will never be challenged like you are going through ranger school or seer school 
or Arctic survival or the Q course or whatever it is. And sometimes the schools, the intellectual schools are going to be like, man, this is harder planning for a field exercise where I'm running on, you know, 24 hours a day, you know, ops for two to three days straight, or there's a team I've got to rely on. There's a, a trust in people, you know, and even in a community sense, we talked identity. I know before we started recording, but tolerance and, you know, the whole inclusion crap on papers is bullshit. Right. True tolerance to me is when I learn to look at you and respect you because of how God made you. And I have to find a way to get over all the biases inside. Right. And being stuck in a fighting hole with somebody when bullets are going down range or it's 130 degrees and I'm going to ruck your stuff out for you forces you to look at selflessness in a different way. And, you know, on the identity front, you know, again, in a virtual world right? The other, right? People not like me might be my next door neighbor because now I don't even need to walk outside. I don't need to tolerate anyone. I can build these micro bubbles of comfort to only be around people like me and create this self-looking ice cream cone of mental influence to where I never actually have to learn to tolerate anyone. I never have to deal with discomfort, you know, physically or emotionally or relationally or, you know, socioeconomically. I can isolate myself from the rest of the world and I think the melting pot of the army, the melting pot of the DOD of the Marine Corps forces you to learn to deal with your own insecurities, your own bias, your own crap, right? You know, and biblically, like iron sharpens iron, right? Like you need each other to sharpen each other. And that only happens through bumping in and rubbing on one another, right? Like it, it happens because you have to deal with it. And like the military is one of the best places that you can do that right? That forces you into situations that you never would have known to put yourself into. And you're going to come out something better in the end. At the same time, my plea to the services is, you know, coming out of the war years, right? We were leading in excess. We had excess stuff. We had excess manpower. We had excess emotional motivation to want to serve. So I don't have to be as detailed. I don't have to be as good. I don't have to be as accurate. I don't have to consider the limiting factors of my decision-making because there's excess emotionally and physically and financially, right? Well, now we don't have that excess, right? And the decisions are being made in these vacuums that cause people wanting to serve and wanting to come in for the right reason to say, you know, it's not worth that pain. I mean, even the, you know, didn't take a vaccine other than honorable discharge, 18 years of service, don't get a vaccine. I'm going to kick you out and ruin your life. Like, you know what? That consequence isn't worth the gain. Right. And I think that's my plea to the services. Like, look, like you need to go back and look at the policies you have, the cultures you have, the woke push isms to create forced tolerance where no one can actually speak up and deal with it. I mean, there's all these kind of decisions that are being made that I think are causing people to look at it and say, the risk isn't worth the reward anymore. I think there's a massive upside, there's a massive value in being in the service and what it's going to teach you and the camaraderie and the credibility and the educational opportunities like through CA and certifications and degree programs. I and mean, there's so many ways to kind of take yourself out of wherever you are and become something better. But I think the services need to take a hard look at some of the policies that are there because the consequences now are starting to influence that. You know what? I'm, I don't want to just be used again because there's no war. There's no other greater service purpose than, you know, go get the shit kicked out of you for a while and then ruin your life. I mean, that's, kind of the counter narrative that's going on i don't agree with it but that's what's there right now yeah i think you bring up a great point that i that i probably haven't really thought of is 
a lot of times we look at the recruit itself and say, what's wrong with the recruit? It's the recruits are weak. They're not what they used to be. They're selfish. But as a service, sometimes we don't look at ourselves and say, what do we need to change to attract the talent without conflict, right? Uh, what, what, if, if you go talk to somebody who's getting out of the army right now, they're going to say, yeah, go join the army now and have to do hours and hours of mandatory training on your computer, have to do all this stuff that doesn't pertain to your job at all. Uh, a disgruntled person can talk somebody out of joining the service real easy because the service, like you said, as at some of this woke stuff that they've put on, on the services to try to do, you know, just for PC purposes, which has no purpose or, you know, in my opinion, any ha shouldn't be in the services at all. Cause that's not what they're there for. It's to fight and win the nation's wars. Uh, I think the services need to take a look at themselves and say, what do we need to change to meet, you know, to meet our customer in the middle here. What do you, what do you think of that? No, I completely agree with you. And I think that, you know, again, I'm all about diversity of thought, right? Diversity of thought does not have an image on the outside, right? I mean, I grew up a minority, yet I'm supposed to be white privilege. You know what I mean? Like, so you can't take this ex external view of people and say, I know what you are by the outside. It's called racism, right? That's that's not okay, and yet that's what we're doing when we start. I need to attract this type of talent, but then you know, as I say tripping over dollar, you know, tripping over penny or tripping over dollars to pick up pennies, kind of a concept. Like, well, I want to recruit this small percentage in this corner, yet now I'm actually isolating the main base of people that used to join in the first place. And maybe I have people who join, but I don't meet my quota. It's like, look, you got to go back and look at, like, what are we really trying to do, and why? And from a corporate perspective, if I'm not getting the throughput that I want, I'm not making production like I want to, I've got to go back and look at my process. I got to look at my leaders. I got to look at my culture. I got to look at the things that I'm doing because I can't look at people applying to my company and say, they're wrong. Why can't I get good people to apply to my company? Well, because maybe your company is turning people off to want to apply, right? And I think, you know, that's some of that raw stuff that the military tries to tell you to do. If your mission fails, you got to look at yourself in the mirror. You've got to assess internally. And I think the services need to look at some of that. I mean, Air Force pool policy and stuff. Some of the things the Air Force is doing, trying to manage budgets or be accountable. It's like, yeah, but then you're hurting people. And therefore, the perception is you don't matter. So get out, right? Protect yourself. Run like the hills versus, wow, that parent, right? The family environment is looking out for me and defending me. When I make a mistake, I'm free to be mentored and coached and improve on that mistake. You know, so the zero defect world, I mean, there's a lot of cultural isms, I think, that Again, because promotions were always happening because there was an influx of people always wanting it. There was this war. There was so much excess. A lot of those decisions, I think, weren't as visible or the consequences weren't as catastrophic. And I think you have to change the way we lead now to look at it. And you can't just say, oh, it's the people applying that are bad and say, look, does the system need to change? And I hate change, right? I mean, I'm one of those guys, too. And I think taking a generation that's grown up on different play, um, different culture, different expectations, and bringing them up to a capability that is now strong enough and mentally, uh, have mental grit to the same level may require you to change a pre-boot camp, may require you to change something. And I think the service needs to look at that, but take a hard look at what is the message that they're sending and the stuff with Russia. I mean, it's funny how you look at like the Russian recruiting videos are almost like watching, um, like a Rambo flick and our recruiting videos are freaking rainbows and unicorns. And it's like, Nope, sorry. I'm a grade a meat eater. I, I don't No Thanks. Right. So what, 
what's your brand, right? What's the message you're sending? And the message you're sending is, we just want the woke folks. And if you're not one of those, you can't speak up, can't do anything about it. I mean, not always. I'm being aggressive on something with this because it hurts and it's frustrating because I'm not that. But, you know, you can still have acceptance and tolerance of respect to one another without trying to highlight preferential treatment, right? Which I think the current way to fix old preferential treatment is to offer preferential treatment. Like that doesn't fix anything, right? That just still creates racism and bias that in my mind, a lot of it didn't exist in the junior levels. It was maybe the systematic, but you could have fixed the system in different ways too. But anyways, sorry, a whole nother discussion. Yeah. That's a whole nother podcast right there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Now we look at your military transition, you know, hindsight, all things being 2020, uh, again, when we spoke before doing this, you talked some things about speed dating, networking, branding, filling the void, hunting, et cetera. Can you just go into yeah. kind of military transition as you see it, what you learned from it, uh, what you would do different about it, and what advice you'd give to those out there that are thinking about a military transition or might be currently in that season of life? Yeah, no, I uh, appreciate the chance to talk on this. So, you know, what? We talked earlier, I didn't know how to process my own transition, right? I'll I'll be honest, it was too painful and I was too ignorant and I didn't set myself up for success, right? So um, there's a a tool, two-part model I call hunting versus fishing. And in my transition, I was a fisherman, right? Throw your resume in the water, hope to catch a fish. Uh, You want a bigger fish, you put shiny shit on your resume, like certifications, and you want a guaranteed fish, use a headhunter, right? Um, They throw your resume in front of starving fish and they want your bait, right? So great, that's what I did. It was the easiest way to get guaranteed fish. Now, thankfully, the, the company that I used did expose us to certain types of industries. But you know, even in that process, I didn't really know how to assess who I was or what I really wanted. Right. And in that process, I only learned how to get fish. I didn't know how or learn how to fish, right? To kind of use the you have a man of fish, teach a man of fish model. I was never taught how to fish or how to hunt. Right. And, you know, thankfully, through entrepreneurship, through my work in government acquisitions and human intelligence with SOCOM, I was able to kind of merge this this new process together that I call hunting. Right. And just like the military, right, know your enemy, know yourself. Right. The first step in transition or hunting is who am I? What do I need? And why am I hunting in the first place? Right. Why am I going after that job? And I think some of the gaps in there are that we think of job titles as an MOS. Right. Well, job titles aren't an MOS. They're actually just creative branding from the company to attract talent and there's no doctrinal definition of what that job title means whether it's project manager or manufacturing or it or consultant or whatever the hr world chose that title based on what they think that job is supposed to look like and they may not even know right so i think we we take a lot of what we expect in structure from the military we project it onto the industry world and they're not the same right so we're already going in with a bad rosetta stone right in terms of how that works. But in order to decode that Rosetta Stone, I have to know what I'm hunting for, right? So uh, StrengthsFinder 2.0, right? Or, or Clifton StrengthsFinder is a great assessment on what are my natural giftings. Um, Discover Your Why by Simon Sinek is a great program. There's a discount, uh, Salute to Service 2022 that takes it down to $25, right? And neither of those give you your job title, right? But by knowing my strengths and knowing my why and my purpose, I can assess, is this a good fit for me, right? So like the dating analogy, before I even ask to go on this date, does this person meet what I want in my life, 
right? Does this job meet the needs that I have? And I walk through this Maslow's hierarchy as a way to assess that starts on every rung, right? Like some physiologically, I need some level of pay and benefits, right? Culture belonging. I want some level of authority and purpose and some way that decisions get made. I'm willing to tolerate some level of risk or not. Um, I want growth. I want freedom. I want to travel. I want, like, whatever these things are and write them all down, right? Because that then becomes the lens and filter you use to assess what title in what industry in what position might align with what I really want to do. And I think we make assumptions, right? We talk in solutions, not requirements. And I learned this in government acquisition that if I told you, where do you want to go to eat? You're going to tell me some restaurant. You're not going to tell me that I want something made in some amount of time that's going to cost some amount of money and some atmosphere that I want to sit in that's going to allow me to do something with some level of caloric intake to satisfy a workout need that I've got going on tomorrow. You're just going to tell me the answer, right? And this goes back to the vulnerability piece. I think the vulnerable side of communication is needs driven. The invulnerable side of communication is solutions driven, right? So to go back to being vulnerable, I have to start writing down what I really want and explore that in detail and let my family participate in that because you know what? I really don't want to run the rat race anymore. I don't want all that authority in life anymore. We don't need to make that much money. Why? Because I really want family time. So family time is a priority. What other conditions do I need to put in my life to allow family time to be that priority? I don't want the title anymore. Why? Because the title means no family time. So it's knowing how to map out the requirements, rank the requirements, so that I can start networking, start having those conversations with people to figure out what might be a solution. What are all the solutions that might go into that, right? And you know, for me, my own journey, I'd never wanted sales. And now I'm essentially the director of sales. And I love my job, right, with Crowler because the mission of the company aligned with my why and purpose of helping people tied in with my natural giftings and strengths allows me to be all of who God made me to be in this position. Who cares that the title is sales if what I'm doing aligns with my needs, right? But we get stuck on titles and rank and our position. And, you know, I tell people like wanting a job for a good company with a good title and good pay is like saying, I want to marry somebody who's hot and rich and from a good family. And that's all I care about, right? Like, well, if that's all you want, then you're not going to be fulfilled, right? You may get everything you think you want and be miserable the rest of your life. So it takes a deeper level of understanding. And then, you know, the, the next like four steps in the process of hunting, I say, first one is, you know, who am I? What do I need? Why am I hunting? Step two, find a hunting guide, talk to somebody in the industry to figure out what the industry even looks like, right? Like a Maku or an Intel overlay, right? Like what is the terrain like? How is it structured? Where are the different enemy locations going to be? So I can assess what's there. Um, find a spotter, right? Using LinkedIn to hunt, right? Find a fellow veteran inside of the organization so I can talk to them. And rather than, you know, blind dating or speed dating where I just put my resume in and hope someone says you're hot or not. And they just like, say, say hot or not.com. Nope, hot, not, not hot. Okay, you go in this, not, not hot. Okay, I'll go talk to the hot ones. I mean, like that's what recruiters do. So if I want to affect the decision-making like a date, talk to someone's friends, have them introduce you and validate your character and your attributes so I can start a conversation with that person I'm interested in that isn't simply hot or not, right? I mean, and that's where networking with a veteran inside lets you assess, do you even want to go on the date? Do I even want to apply? Does this company match my needs? If it's not the job I thought I found, what would the job be? 
and then assess your weapon system, right? You, how, how well do your knowledge, skills, and abilities align with the credibility of the job? So the caliber of your resume, your bullet, carries enough weight to influence the buying decision of a hiring manager, right? And I think veterans are told, like, everyone's hiring veterans. Yeah, for janitors, I mean, they, they want veterans, but they don't know what you do because in the business world, I don't care that you can kill something with a K-bar. I care that you can make me money, right? Well, to do that means I need to be able to understand what you're saying. I need to be able to relate to your credibility in my business. I need to be able to use words and talk with you. I need to be able to know the value you have. And that goes to my passion on certs, right? Like I work with a company teaching project management, right? PMP, Agile, Lean Six Sigma. They're great certs. That doesn't guarantee you to get a job. Not everyone needs that. And they're good skill sets to have. But ultimately, it's up to the company to decide, right? The company gets to determine what they find attractive. The company gets to determine what they're hiring for. What is the gap that they have? And how do you assess it, right? And it's like, if I had known this stuff, I probably wouldn't have used a headhunter. I would have started earlier. I mean, thankfully, I got Lean Six and PMP on active duty, but teaching people how to even self-discover, right? What exactly do I want first, then go start looking at all the possible solutions. And again, I think the, the pyramidal structure, the rank progression, the known progression, the titles, the standardization of the military is great, but that creates a massive deficit in transition because that's not how industry works. And we don't do a good job teaching veterans how to hunt and the difference between military and industry, right? I mean, the military takes five years-ish to build an identity for you from boot camp to capabilities to rank and growth. And then they give you a five-day class and a pat on the ass and say, good luck. Yep. So, yeah, um, you're, you're speaking my language there when I, when I talk to people who are transitioning and, I, and they're, they're looking for the job. And I said, well, you got to know who you are first. You need to, you need to understand what are your values, right? What are you looking, what, what are your priorities? Um, um, until you know who you are, you're not going to know what you want to do. And I think that's why so many veterans go out there and they career hop for the first four or five years as they just do something that's uh, not aligned with who they are as a person. And they don't cultivate that emotional intelligence and, and themselves and, and have a true understanding of themselves. And some never do it. And then you know you you find the ones that that do finally take the time to do it. And I'm, when I talk to people, I try to get them to do it sooner th than later is, is yeah. my biggest thing. Um, moving on. I mean, I think the, on that, yeah, like go, go you know, with certs too, like the Army CA program. I think Army's example and our passion there is how do we build soldier lethality and job credibility, right? And I think the answer is industry certs, right? You know, there's almost 1,700 certifications out there that soldiers can get, right? To go back to the Army specific, the Coast Guard just created a CA program. Air Force cool is kind of there, but, um, you know, to say, look, like there's industry credibility out there. What, you know, what if proponents, what if the leadership could look at that list of certs and say, these are the ones that I think will make soldiers in my MOS better, incentivize them through promotion points to possibly go pursue them, maybe even nest them as an elective inside the formal learning centers. Right. We do that with colleges. We give you equal credit so I can finish some school with like a master's in strategic planning from who gives a crap. Right. Like that lets me have a master's. But unless I'm going to work in the defense industry, no one's going to care. So great. I can get this accreditation. I can get a master's and say that I have it. But yet on the outside world, certs are now mattering almost more than degrees. Right. So why don't we understand that education isn't just about college anymore? Education is also certification. 
nest them as an evening elective class at ALC, SLC, ILE, one officer's career course, captain's career course, right? And help them learn to be better while in uniform and set them up for success later on, right? So that, you know, in the cert world, I say, you don't want to be going into the firefight realizing you're not carrying the right weapon, right? right? The job hunt, you are the weapon system. And upgrading takes time. And in your last year, there's so much other emotion going on you know, dealing with the identity change, dealing with the emotion of getting out, feeling like you're abandoning your team, trying to find a job, not knowing where to go, VA appointments, medical appointments, TAPS classes, and skill boards, internships. Like, look, we need to start this two, three, five years earlier so that we can help build a transition-ready soldier emotionally, professionally, and financially, right? All those take time, and we're not doing enough, in my opinion now, and that's where I've built this class called the Empowered Transition, to start trying to do that. And Soldier for Life just launched a podcast with that right now too. But like, we've got to do better to help realize that it's not just as easy as it was. I mean, it's a target rich environment for jobs. Yeah. People like what veterans do, but they don't understand them. And we've got, we've got to help them. Right. And. Yeah. I, 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 I agree a hundred percent when I'm, when I'm talking, you know, a couple of years ago when I was still wearing the uniform and I would uh, talk to the younger classes and the new guys to the regiment, new guys and gals, I would tell them, your transition starts today. You might get out in four years or you might get out in 25 years, but eventually the army's going to end. The Marines is going to end. The air force is going to end. If you start thinking about that now and, and, and hopefully the organizations are now moving to help people understand how to translate those military skills. And uh, I want you to speak a little bit about PM, PMP. Cause that's one thing what I did last in the 75th is we stood up PMP and started sending more people to PMP than just our engineers. We started opening it up to others. Personally, I went to the PMP boot camp, and when I got on there, I was in a, it was way more in depth than I expected. For one, I didn't I didn't <laughs> I didn't enter the PMP process in the right mindset, um, you know, like graduate studies yeah. level mindset. Um, but I but I immediately saw the value of it translating my military language into civilian language, uh, you know, taking my military acronyms and putting them in, into civilian speak. I could see the benefit, you know, immediately in that PMP boot camp. Can you just speak a little bit about PMP and why it you know, you think it's a good fit for, for service members? Yeah, I think I'll, I'll take it. I'll answer it. I'll expand upon it as we've expanded and grown, even since we started, you know, working with, with you in the 75th on trying to integrate this as a PME model is the world of projects kind of has, has three areas, right? You have adaptive, predictive, and process improvement, right? So you have PMP, ACP, and lean kind of in each of those categories. And what the professional world is learning is that just like mission planning, you know, predictive started in construction. So I have a detailed blueprint execute to a T. Right. Adaptive started in software where I have an idea from the customer and I have no idea how I'm going to get it done. Right. And then Lean Six, right. Ford, Motorola, like the companies out there, like, look, I want to make sure that I'm doing as much as possible to the highest quality standard I can with the limited resources that I have. Right. And like mission planning, right. Every mission's different. Every known or known unknown or unknown unknown, right. They're all different depending on the nature of the type of mission that I'm doing. So, you know, the ability to, get these certs, right? So our passion would be like Agile by E4 because it's about small teams and rapid change, right? It gives you a framework to know how to deal with conflict and lead and coach and mentor while having a process structure to execute in different ways, depending on, again, type of mission, resource, type of MOS that I have. You know, leans about efficiency and quality. So how do I learn to assess things like awarding process? Why is it taking me 45 days or 180 days to get an Army Achievement Medal signed? Well, now I can do something about it. Now I can actually learn how to map a process, assess value in each step, challenge status quo a little bit and say, why? 
and then fix it. And then on the, the PMP side, kind of the strategic end, like tactical to operational strategic is kind of the progression we're going through E4, E5, E6, or, you know, warrant, warrant one, two, and three, or, you know, 020304, right? They kind of all nest well in that world, but like the PMP really does take the MDMP environment and expand upon it, right? Because military planning stops it, right? The order, right? Coa dev is inherently agile, actually throw it on the wall, see what sticks, change it until I get it right. Then I shift into a predictive planning model. I write the order and then it just sits on the shelf. Well, okay, great. And that's what I think you saw in PMP, like building a work breakdown structure, building a task list, building a resource plan and a schedule. And all these critical staff estimates that go into this plan are very akin to the military planning process. But executing it, right? The skills of execution, I think, are where we expand upon the knowns, right? How do I track work? How do I track resource consumption? How do I estimate these resource needs? How do I communicate differently? How do I manage people differently? And, you know, in that, right, I think it's, it is, it's a fire hose, right? It's like a graduate level study event. But in doing so, right, in earning that, I can build better leaders now, right? We can build soldier lethality through project management now. And then on the outside, you get that job credibility side, right? And we talked identity a little earlier on, you know, when I leave this family, I'm now forever veteran. And I can't take what was important in this family and go show it to somebody else and have them know what that translates into in a business environment. But if I can show up speaking the language of that industry, I'm no longer as foreign as I might have been. I can relate to professionally with shared conflict, right? Earning a cert is hard, as you experienced. They don't give these things out. It's not a participation trophy. You earn it, right? So in the military, respect, you know, ranger tabs and sapper tabs and all these things, right? Industry respects certs you earn too, right? That's why they come with credibility. If I can show up with a respect and the credibility, I can speak a language industry expects to understand. I can identify now with other professionals so I don't feel as alone as a veteran. Right. And there's this other, right? There's people that don't have it. Right. So now I'm special and I can stand out from the crowd because I'm different than the other people that aren't certified as a professional. Right. And I think that part of the concept goes way beyond MP, right? It goes back to that, you know, building credibility part of search that means something carry credibility and carry weight. But I, you know, again, I was blessed to get lean six as a maintenance officer. I used it every day. I got lean six as a division plans officer. I'd have had it earlier, right? And that kind of set the foundation for PM ProLearn, which is how do we integrate project management as a leadership PME to make, you know, DOD leaders more effective while they're in uniform and establish the foundations of job credibility after uniform, right? Because ultimately, every business cares about two things, customer satisfaction and profitability. Every project manager cares about predominantly two things customer satisfaction and profitability, right? Every military leader cares about two things, satisfying commander's intent and maximizing resources or customer satisfaction and profitability. I mean, like, there's a lot of commonality. So even if your job isn't the project manager, everything you're doing inside of an organization is still connected to the mission of the project or the mission of the organization. And that's where it's, there's so much good parallel with the two, you know, that, that's why, you know, that is a huge passion of mine is understand that. But a lot of people walk in going, oh, I'll just get this thing. It was in your group. I looked up PMP on Google and said they make six figures. I'll just walk in and get it. And then you get kicked in the face. And you're like, holy yeah. crap. They don't just walk in and get this. You earn this. You know, and that's where I think people just don't know, yeah. right? To the whole 
Rosetta Stone. Oh, I'll get, I'll be that. Well, I'm told I'm a project manager. I'll just go get that. And it's like, you don't just walk into the army and get a ranger tab. Right. Right. You earn it. And yeah, I was definitely one of the ones getting kicked in the kicked in the face there for that uh, for that week long uh, boot camp. Uh, uh, hopefully, someday I can go back and and finish that up. But Josh, you are a wealth of information. You're a great advocate for service members and helping them transition. And uh, I just thanks for everything you do. I want to close it out when I ask you one final question to take you all the way back to that graduate from the Naval Academy. If you could give that that Josh a piece of advice, uh, what would it be? Go all out, I guess, right? The one regret I've had when I look back in my service was keeping something in reserve, right? You know, when you go into a PT session, you don't know how long it's going to take. So you you always hold something back, you know? Um, so go all out, right? Push yourself, challenge yourself. And then the second piece of advice is, you know, one, think of the end, right? Set yourself up for success down the road from the beginning. Right, financially, things like life insurance, right? Like have a whole life plan at 22 because it's a whole lot cheaper. It's going to sound expensive, but then you don't have to deal with it anymore when you get out. Um, you know, leveraging educational benefits, right? Like I wish I'd have used TA to get a master's degree. I never did because it wasn't all that important. I thought I had another 10 years to go in my career and I didn't. Right. So take advantage of your benefits. Um, you know, and last piece is realize the game that's being played, right? I was ignorant to the political game. I was ignorant to perception being reality. And my personality says, screw it. I don't care what game is being played. Well, your career depends on that game sometimes. So either acknowledge that you're not going to play it and accept the consequence or learn how to play it inside the bounds of your own character limits. And if it doesn't work, then leave, right? If it's beyond your character limits and you can't play it, then, then, then choose to leave. But don't get bit because you didn't know the game was even being played, right? right? And yes. that's what happened to me. Like, I refused to acknowledge that there might be a game. I refused to acknowledge perception. I, that's where my arrogance bit me, right? My arrogance refused to play it, right? I don't agree with that game. I don't want to play that game. Well, yeah, but everyone else is playing the game, yeah. right? And it still happens in, in, in industry, right? There's a game being played. You got to know what it is or choose to find another company. Um, well, I said, I'm blessed, right? The things I've learned now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be who I am if I had not been through the experiences I've been through, painful or not, right? I am blessed and I am grateful that I get a chance to talk with folks like you to keep helping veterans, you know, on a daily basis. Um, not doing the job I thought I never wanted, but absolutely loved because I had to figure it out, but hopefully I can help other people figure it out faster with less pain. That's right. Yeah, leave it better, leave it better for the next for the next group. Uh, appreciate you coming on here today. For everybody out there watching and listening, make sure you do all that stuff. Like, share, subscribe, and uh, we'll catch you guys on the next episode. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Yuma.